name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. And welcome, welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome to this latest edition of Talking Bat. And this time, I think for the second or the third time ever, we are going beyond the continent of Europe and we're going into Africa. And we're actually going Southern Africa even with Professor Peter Taylor. How are you doing, Peter? Very fine, thanks, Neil. And yourself? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, we've had a bit of a <laughs> we've had a bit of a bumpy road getting to this point between different things. Um, so just to let well, us know, uh, we've uh, yeah, I mean, t- technology issues uh, and stuff like that uh, meant we could have had this out a little bit sooner. But uh, here we are at long last, and yeah. this is the first time I've actually met you face to face, Peter. So I'm really looking forward to this. When you woke up this morning, Peter, um, did you think, oh, darn, why did I ever agree to do this? Or were you thinking, yeah, this might be all right? What was your thoughts? <laughs> I, I thought it, it, it could be fun. I'm okay. not stressed at all. <laughs> I expected it to be chilled. Yeah. Okay. It's definitely good. Um, I was just sorry for the false start. As you know, a week ago, I had no voice. And even now, my voice is a bit croaky. So, I was just a little bit nervous that my voice might go on me, but it seems to be fine. Yeah, it's sounding good at this end anyway. And uh, and we're talking just before the start about uh, my Scottish accent and your accent and just double checking that we can uh, that we can understand each other. <laughs> so, so if I say any words, Peter, that you're not sure of, because I'm told I'm quite a fast talker with a Scottish accent, just, just ask me to repeat myself. It's it's not a problem. Okay. <laughs> so uh, everybody, you uh, also talk too fast. So I'm sure you'll tell me. If I, uh, if absolutely, if absolutely. Fast. So first thing I was going to ask you, Peter, this picture down here in the bottom right hand side. Uh, I think I got this off the internet somewhere. Uh, where was that taken? Uh, can you recall? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. That was um, that was actually taken in the. Drakensberg Mountains of South Africa, um, a good more than 10 years ago, um, before I actually realized I would actually be working very close to the same location. So that was at Monk's Cowl in the Drakensberg. Wow. And yeah, wow. in a way I've come a circle in 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 now 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 I'm staying at a university very close to that location. But at the time I was staying at Durban um, at the Natural Science Museum and I'm about to move to the University of Venda. So um, it just happened to be taken in the mountains. Wow. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about the National Science Museum and the University of Venda, I'm sure. Uh, but before we, before we do that, I just want to give people a very quick overview of uh, who you are. And listen, folks, um, a lot of you are in Europe or uh, the Americas or Asia uh, that might be watching this. So you may not necessarily be from a part of the world where uh, you would necessarily know uh, 
who Peter was, but I can totally assure you that if you had anything to do with uh, not just South African bats, but probably just mammals generally in Southern Africa, I'm pretty certain you would have uh, either heard of Peter or you would know Peter and some of the stuff that he's been up to. But here is just the, a very brief overview. Um, his research focuses on bats and other mammals in natural and agricultural landscapes, uh, predominantly uh, Southern African species. You did your PhD at the University of Natal in Durban, uh, Peter, on yellow mongoose. Uh, you were then the curator of mammals at Durban Natural Science Museum for quite a long period of time there, actually. That's what, 21 years of my arithmetic is correct. You're the co-founder of a bat conservation organization called Bats KZN, associate professor for a couple of years, then going on to be a professor as of 2012, and the South African Research Chair in Biodiversity Value and Change in VEMB Biosphere Reserve at the University of Venda. And you are now currently professor at the University of the Free State. I'm not going to say how to pronounce that campus. I'll leave you to do that. But does that pretty much uh, summarise yourself, Peter? Is there anything that you'd like to pull out of that just to kind of give us a bit more depth? Um, yeah, the, the pronunciation of that campus is not easy. It's got a click and it's a quack quack. So I wouldn't have expected you to manage that. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that looks pretty complete. Thanks, Neil. I, I don't know if you want, I, I don't have any points at the moment. I think you've covered all, all my bases. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Well, I As you say, a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of my mountain, my research has been on African mountains. Um, at, in the beginning, it was just more or less fortuitous uh, because I did work there. Um, but now it's become more and more focused. So very much mountain environments um, and Afro-Montane mammals is, my fo is the focus. So by Afro-Montane, uh, you know, which is maybe an expression that a lot of people may not have heard outside of Africa, you basically mean mammals that uh, occur in African mountain, mountainous habitat, yes? Yeah. 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 yeah, that's pretty much all it really means, African mountain, <laughs> yeah. African Afro-Montane. Afro um, yeah. There was... A, the term was coined by a botanist on a book on the vegetation of Africa. And he described very poetically almost this Afro-Montane archipelago. So all these mountain sky islands of habitats that are almost like an archipelago, you know, these sort of um, isolated habitats occurring right across Africa. So that I like that term Afro-Montane archipelago because it, it's helped explain why we have such incredible diversity and speciation in these in these montane habitats because they're so isolated by lower lying elevations that you know they sort of evolutionary cradle if you like of diversity of mammals and other plants and animals okay okay so does that tend okay and excuse me i mean i've been to africa a few times but never doing research 
pretty much only as a kind of a traveller. Okay, and the furthest south I've been is Namibia. Okay, I was very fortunate. I spent almost three weeks in Namibia uh, a few years ago. But um, but I kind of noticed, you know, once you start getting a little bit higher up, you tend to get away from a lot of the land-based mammals that maybe tourists are accustomed to seeing. Is that a fear? Is, is that a fear re- reflection? I mean, or yeah. or not necessarily? I suppose it depends how high up you go, is it? Um, yeah. yeah, it yeah. definitely, yeah. I mean, when, when we think of Africa's great wildlife, we're thinking of the plains and, you know, the Serengeti, that's the image we have of African large, the charismatic wildlife. So up where I live, we do have large mammals such as elant, which are really culturally important, occurring right high up in the mountains. And um, where I worked in the mountains in East Africa, Mount Algon, we we saw buffalo right up at 4,000 meters. So there are exceptions to that, but it's definitely like you say, the Great Plains where the large mammals are. And the mountains very often harbor small mammals and small creatures and plants that that aren't found anywhere else in the world that are endemic but smaller sized is probably correct to say yeah okay yeah so let's go back to you know yourself as a a teenager were you always going to take the route down natural history um are you always destined to be on the kind of journey that you're on tell us a bit about that yeah thanks neil Definitely, I was always going to be a zoologist, and I was very, very inspired as a school child by, by Gerald Durrell's books and books like that, that described wild places and, and mammals in detail. So I always wanted to study mammals, even though as a child, I think I was um, more into the arts and creative things in a way than hard science. But my love of nature and zoology, I think it was never any doubt from the time I was probably... 12 years old that I was going to do zoology. And so okay. it just followed na- very naturally. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I was saying before we were cut off, I was so inspired by Gerald Durrell that I wrote to the Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust for a job when I was 14. And they told me, no, they sorry, they didn't have any openings for me at the time. <laughs> yeah. oh, I've, I've actually been to Jersey and I've been inside, I've been inside uh, the, mm. the site there. Uh, it's a pretty amazing place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but wow, so you were, you were always going to, you were always going to take that route, uh, which is, uh, you know, which is, which is really interesting. Yeah. So here we are. Here's a map of Southern Africa, folks. And uh, you can see Johannesburg up here. Uh, and where Peter is currently based is this area here called, uh, well, this location here called the U- University of the Free State. Uh, I won't do the pronunciation. Um, but we mentioned previously that you had quite a long spell in the Natural History Science Museum in Durban. I know it's called something slightly different, but uh, mm-hmm. but you're quite, what's it, 20 plus years there. Uh, how did yeah. you, yeah, tell us about your experiences there. Yeah, there was, it was more than 20 years. So um, there was no curator of mammals before I started the Durban Natural Science Museum. So it was a new position and I just finishing my PhD on mongooses. So it was kind of very much a natural thing for me. The collection was very new. Um, so 
I kind of threw myself into that job. Um, and pretty soon we were collecting, yeah, all sorts of mammals like my hero, Gerald Darrell, but small mammals. So um, mammals, rodents and bats. So it was about that time that I got really excited about bats. I didn't know much about bats at all. You know, I was interested in mongooses and rodents. I, I knew very little about bats, but very early in my career, there was a, a um, documentary from a film company that um, needed somebody to talk about bats and there was no one else in the country. That was back in about 1994. So I'd only been working at the museum a couple of years. So we decided based on, you know, what we were hearing about was the great success of bat clubs in the UK. There was a manual published around the early nineties and we thought the museum would be a great platform to launch a bat club. So we basically, copied the British model in a way, decided we're going to do a bat group and everybody thought we were a bit mad. But yeah, that basically was very much the early part of my museum career. Um, so a lot of the time I'm collecting um, mammals like bats and people think that there's a bit of a contradiction that why would I, you know, I mean, collecting specimens is usually entails being destructive. You have to take, unfortunately, you need to sacrifice specimens. So a lot of the knowledge we have, though, for the books that I've written come from those collections. So um, it's, you know, I'm just trying to throw in a bit of education there. The mu museums are often seen as not being pro-conservation and just, you know, killing animals. But you, a lot of, it's, it's not true. A lot of museum collections are very valuable. Um, yeah. And so they work to yeah. support conservation quite strongly. Yeah. And, and back then, and even further back than that, um, we didn't have the technology and the techniques and the yeah. approaches that we would maybe use today to identify animals, um, you know, uh, so. That is so true. So when, so when, you, when you go back then, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult, I would imagine now for, uh, I suppose, youngsters that are involved in scientific study to uh, perhaps appreciate that, you know, back in the 1980s and then 1970s and then long before that, you know, there was no internet, there was no guides oh. on identifying bats on, on their acoustics, uh, you know, etc, etc, DNA, you know, who would have been using DNA to identify animals 30, 40 years ago, you know, it's... No. Yeah, so I think I completely yeah. agree with you. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have any of those sorts of techniques like DNA and bat detectors. We hadn't got any bat detectors. So now there's, um, you know, we got far more opportunities for research and investigation into bats. So I completely agree with you. But yeah. those collections formed a wonderful deposit and, and reference, you know, of life on Earth. And of course, the, the Natural History Museum in London, all the great museums of the world. Even now, you can get DNA from those old collections. You you can do so much more with those old collections, so that they they I think they form important foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's you know it's really really interesting to get that perspective. And uh, and you're not the first person that's been on uh, on one of these sessions that's uh, talked about something similar. Um, Good. <laughs> going back, you know, you know what things were like going back quite a few decades.
If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. on after uh, Durban to go to the University of Venda and here uh, you describe as continuing with your taxonomic research in small mammals describing 17 new species. I suppose once you get to number 17 uh, <laughs> you're probably thinking okay here's another one but I'm trying to <laughs> put your mind back to the very first time that you maybe appreciated that you were going to get involved in describing a new species. I don't even know what it was a new species of, hopefully you do. Um, how did that feel? I mean, was that uh, was that quite exciting or was it quite, you know, just talk us through what you, you felt about that. Because most people don't get the opportunity to describe one new species. Okay, so yeah. you possibly thought back then well, this is it. This is probably the only time this is ever going to happen, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's also a, a historical thing as well in that we are in, in a new age of discovery. So the, the, the pace of which we accelerate, uh, the pace at which we're describing new species is accelerating. So yeah, 25 sort of years ago, the, um, it, it, it seemed like a really big deal to describe a new species of, of, of mammal. Um, but a lot of it's, I think what people don't realize it's, um, it's very, very time consuming to write a taxonomic paper and revise uh, a group. You, basically, you've had to consult museum collections around the world. You've got to do your homework. You can't just come up with a species and say, ah, oh, that's great. I'll call that so-and-so's bat. It's, it's, you've got to do the groundwork to check that it hasn't been described before. And, you know, we have what we call synonyms that have been described by early explorers so in most cases you know it's not nothing really new someone's already described it so sometimes the names are already available but it's always cool when you can describe a species after somebody that you know there isn't any available name so actually you know one of one of my rodents I described I called it Willens um, Willens rat basically Willens flay rat after a very good friend and mentor of mine who studied rodents. So I'm not even talking bats, but, you know, it was a pleasure to describe Willens um, rodent. And one of the bats I described, I called Smithers horseshoe bat. And Ray Smithers was very, very famous pioneer researcher in Southern Africa who wrote the mammals of the Southern African sub-region in 1983. Before that, he wrote mammals of Rhodesia and Zimbabwe and, you know, Botswana. So that was also good, gave me immense pleasure to describe um, Smithers horseshoe bat after Ray Smithers, who was somebody I admired immensely. So, you know, a lot of the work is very laborious and it doesn't give you goosebumps, but it's very rewarding when sometimes three, four, five years it takes to, from the time you've discovered and you know this is new to the time you see it public, appearing in, pub, in a publication. Um, yeah, so often it's a delayed gratification, but it's, it's still incredibly rewarding. And at the moment, we've got a couple of species that we are about to announce and describe 
one of which is endemic to these high mountains. And we're very excited about this new horseshoe bat, but it probably, you probably have to watch the space for about two years before you see anything published. Wow, amazing stuff. But the bulk of your time, I think from what I can gather, uh, having done uh, a little bit of research on you and then speaking to you before we started today, at the bulk of your time, uh, I think I'm right in saying you're involved in studying uh, bat species and I think bird species and their uh, impact as a uh, control of insect pests, for example, uh, mm. for certain uh, fruit and uh, farm related activities. Do you want to talk a little about a little bit about those things? So I think on the one hand we've got. Uh, the nuts, and the other hand, I think we've got the apples. So I think the, <laughs> the nuts was all to do with Venda, and the apples is all to do with Free State. Mm. Have I got that the right way around? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So yeah. The, the nut research basically about 10 years, again, very slow to take off, but partnerships, especially working with colleagues um, in Germany, University of Göttingen, and, and universities like that, We've, I've been incredibly fortunate to get access to funding and collaborators who've been able to do these giant experiments. So ever since I started the Bat Group, one of our absolute dreams was to prove, was to show farmers the value and importance that bats provide in terms of controlling crop pests. And we always said that there's no research done on this, but if we want to convince the public on, about the importance of conservation and positive messages, not negative messages, we've got to provide actual evidence of that. So we did these giant experiments by blocking and basically excluding, putting nets over these, these nut orchards, these macadamia nut orchards to keep birds out during the day and bats out at night and birds and bats as well in different combinations. So we were able from the economic data farmers gave us and knowing what the damage was caused by my insects, especially stink bugs, to the nuts and the, the loss of quality. We could put numbers and show that if you didn't have bats and birds in those orchards, you as a farmer would have to be spraying more poisons. It would costing you 5,000 US dollars a hectare a year. That was the avoided cost. That was what it would cost you more if you didn't have bats and birds. And then we began to realize that natural habitats had provided more of a service in, in those natural habitats, the damage that we lost when we kept bats and birds up was greater because they natural habitats harbored bats and birds. So for me, that was one of the milestones of my research that it was a dream come true that I always wanted to be able to give realistic figures to farmers. And so that's inspired this work on apples, which is very recent research in the last two or three years um, with a new one of our PhD students. So yeah, the macadamia work was actually mostly two PhD students of mine, Sina Weyer and Valerie Linden, who undertook the work. Um, they were from Germany and they've now settled in South Africa and our collaborators are from Germany. So this was part of a really exciting experiment and we're trying to just do similar things. So quite a bit of this research, and I'm sure you've heard from some of you other people you interviewed, this kind of research is starting to take off in other parts of the world as well. And we're beginning to see just how vital bats are. And my um, mentor, Merlin Tuttle, told us that many years ago when he visited us in South Africa at the beginning of our bat group, he told us we'd 
don't actually have any idea how important bats really are. And that whatever we figure is how the importance is probably as order of magnitude less than the actual benefit they provide. So he is actually right. You know, when we do, when we do the sums, we're finding um, that bats kind of blow us away and that we can't afford not to have them in our farms. And ironically, yet we often farming practices provide, you know, they, they don't involve appropriate use of pesticides. They, they clear land and judiciously and there's reasons why, you know, they, they have negative effects on, in fact, their own livelihoods because, you know, they, they then have to spray more poisons to try and keep the insects at a manageable level. So in the longer term, it just doesn't help, you know, and then you poison the, the natural enemies like bats and the natural insects by adding more poison. So it's, it's really hard to convince farmers that in the short term, you should have acceptable loss in, in for the greater good of in the longer term to have more sustainable sort of farming practices. So it's hard, it's hard to convince farmers when their profit, you know, is from one year to the next. No, no, absolutely. But uh, but taking the example of being able to demonstrate the monetary uh, saving and costs, um, mm. you know, the five thousand per hectare, uh, I think that you quoted, um, that that's that's money that's coming off their bottom line. If they're spending five thousand a hectare, that's coming off of their profitability. If they're not spending yeah. it, then that's. Yeah. That's like mm -hmm. selling a whole load of fruit or nuts yeah. that they didn't actually have because they haven't had the associated cost. And and obviously, you know a lot more about this stuff than I do because you've done the numbers. No, I, but I, I think you're right, but they don't see that. That's the problem. They don't see them because they get it for free. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that, and, that, and that's the thing. And and. And obviously, in the middle of uh, and just still developing and doing this research uh, relating to the apple industry, but uh, I'm assuming that you're either hoping or you're beginning to find similar results, or are you unable to see at this stage? Is it uh, too early? Yeah, it's still too early to say with the apples. They. The, the the main pests they have are coddling moths and false coddling moths and um they almost certainly are pest peas that we know bats eat from other studies done in other parts of the world so yeah we're pretty certain that we're going to find that important part of the diet of bats so so far we've been collecting samples on about you know look at the this sort of activity of bats where they are in these farms and also what they are feeding on so we find it pretty cool that if you put lots of bat houses into these agricultural landscapes, making sure that they're not on the farms themselves where they'll get sprayed, um, then we, we find that, um, yeah, we, we, we put little trays under the bat houses and we put lots of them up on farms and bats are frequently using those bat houses, even if it's just a few bats for a few days at a time. But it's, gave us, it's given us a brilliant, actually quite a novel method of collecting the droppings that, you know, the pellets, the fecal pellets of the bats. So yeah. the bats drop, they occupy the bat house, they drop their pellets on these trays that we've installed. So it gives us a way of regularly collecting samples. So we're actually very excited now to use um, DNA methods 
um, multiplex primers and DNA better barcoding, as well as more conventional methods. So we've actually got, and farmers themselves with bats living in their roofs and so on, and also by catching bats, we've actually got, my two students have got wonderful sample size. So now we just, we just have to um, get into the laboratory and, and analyze the data. So we, we, we don't have data yet, but we've got a lot of samples. <laughs> so let me ask a couple of questions then about, uh, first of all, these bat houses. I think I know what's going on here. Uh, but yeah. if you look at the picture, folks, you'll see that one of the, the bat houses is white in colour, the other one is dark in colour. I'm assuming, Peter, this is all to do with trying to regulate different temperature regimes within the bat boxes, is that correct? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there'll be more solar absorbance in the black bat houses, they'll be warmer the white ones will reflect more heat. So this was something, again, Merlin Tuttle suggested that we do it long ago. So um, there's a nice experimental aspect to that. Yeah, each pair of bat houses, as you see, mounted on one pole, has a black one that's facing the sort of warmer northwest and a white one that's facing the colder southern aspect. So we're getting the maximum gradient. So yeah. we have been monitoring the bat houses um, on the apple farms and on schools in the local area. and yeah, so we, again, we have these data, but we just haven't analyzed them yet. But we, we, we've had quite regular occupancy of these bat houses, which is exciting. Sometimes a whole maternity roost of female breed, breeding females will use the bat house. Other times it seems to be bachelor males that are, are using the bat houses. So yeah, we're learning a lot from this experiment. I think we put out about 30 bat houses and yeah. a year ago, and now we're starting to get occupancy and like I say you know when the bats occupy the bat house they leave a few pellets for us which helps us to find out what the bats are feeding on. Okay. And I would also imagine the pellets are also going to confirm what species of bat you've got is that correct or will you have a, a, a variety of different species of bats occupying these bat houses or does it tend to be a uh, one one species? Thanks Neil no that's a great great question. The, in this area, there's one species that dominates, and that's the Cape serotine, but quite a diversity, I think six, five or six species at least that we've found in the area, and it's probably more than that. So, yeah, but there are two main species that are occupying the bad houses and are more common or occupying people's roofs and farms and schools and towns. So one is the Cape serotine and the other is the um, Egyptian free-tailed bat, Tadarida egyptiaca. So, there are two common species that predominate, especially in these bat houses, but it's the rarer species we're also interested in um, that occur in lower frequencies, but that aren't found. So there are at least three that aren't found anywhere else in the world than wow. in these mountains. So as I say, two of them probably need to be described as distinct species because they were previously part of species that might've occurred, for example, in Kenya, and it just doesn't make sense that that would occur in Kenya and then again in these um, northern Drakensberg Mountains. So this long-eared bat that we, is very rare. Um, okay. We're quite sure that it's probably specific, uh, endemic to our area and not the same as what was previously found in Kenya and South Africa. Okay, wow, wow. Now up here, uh, now okay folks, I am not going to profess to know anything at all really about 
bats in southern Africa. So I'm going to say what the species is only because I saw the label on the picture that Peter sent me. <laughs> I believe this is a slit-faced bat. And is it eating what you would refer to as a stink, a, a, sorry, a, a stink bug? Yeah. Stink uh, bug. Yeah. Um, it is. Yeah. And a picture taken by Merlin Tuttle. And Peter, you maybe don't know this, but we actually heard Merlin on Talking Bat last year. I know. He did a he did an interview for us. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever met him. And obviously I've heard all about him and I've seen him on uh, the internet and stuff. But uh, yeah, an amazing, yeah. Uh, inspirational, uh, passionate guy, you know. Um, that, but that uh, picture, this is one of Merlin's pictures. Tell us about the species. I can just tell you a bit parts. about that picture if you want to. <laughs> mm. that, that picture is a slit-faced bat, as you saw, saw yeah. and it is carrying a green a stink bug. But okay. that was photographed in a studio that he set up in my house okay. in 2014. Okay. And it took him about 10,000 photographs to get that one. So, you know, a lot of patience and a lot of repetition. And we had to keep him supplied. His favorite food is Merlin's favorite food is, is macadamia nuts. And he also needed a steady supply of stink bugs. So that's what we did. <laughs> and that's all that Merlin did. He was very focused um, for yeah. a, a couple of weeks. That's all he did um, with his wife, Paula. And, and we just provided them with, with the bats and the, and the stink bugs. And the nuts. <laughs> and the macadamia nuts. <laughs> so he's sitting there eating the nuts for the bats that tried to catch the bugs. Is that kind of? Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> but he also spoke to farmers there and he, he was really instrumental in getting farmers on board for this project because they were skeptical. They did not believe that bats ate stink bugs. They said stink bugs fly slowly in trees. Bats don't fly there. So the, the farmers were very skeptical for years and years until we had DNA evidence and photographs like this one to finally persuade them and actually then demonstrate that actually not only did bats eat stink bugs, but that if you didn't have bats in your orchards, you were going to give a lot more stink bug damage um, on your, in your macadamia nuts. Which then means you're going to have to spend even more on chemicals and human resources in order to control it. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, amazing stuff, amazing stuff. Um, I really, I mean, when I saw this picture of these uh, bat houses here, um, I'm going to tell a little bit of a, a story uh, here from my own perspective. Uh, I'm sitting uh, in Pullman in the central belt of Scotland, folks, and outside my window, about four miles that direction, I believe is the only example in Scotland of a bat box that looks like this on top of a telegraph pole. And it was a very dark one that we used. And this is kind of why I knew what was going on with this different color variation here. Mm -hmm. Because what they did in North America, uh, goodness, they've been doing this for decades, is the different uh, colors of bat box. And the further south you were in the United States, you would go for a lighter colored box because that would reflect heat as Peter was saying earlier. And if you're much, if you're further north in North America, you would go for the darker boxes because they retained the heat because of the heat absorption. So, uh, and I was very fortunate to uh, be involved in the installation of one of these beside a, 
a bat roost, as I say, about four miles that way. It never worked, unfortunately, but that's a different story altogether. <laughs> so so, so when, when you sent me these pictures, Peter, uh, yeah. I just went, yeah, wow, that's just like that big bat box. We've got four miles that way. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's uh, good yep. stuff, good stuff. So uh, you've got a harp trap here, got a nice Ostbat uh, two-bank harp trap, I think, there. Mm -hmm. uh, do yep. you find that you spend most of your time harp trapping or do you do a bit mm -hmm. of mist netting? Uh, do you get involved in or ultrasonic luring? Do you do any of that kind of stuff? Yep, yeah, all, all of the above. Yeah, so the, the harp traps in some situations are really useful where there's flight paths and in these mountains, especially where there's gorges through the mountains, the harp traps and rivers, the harp traps have been incredibly successful in, in some of these rare bats. But we also use um, different sizes of mist nets, often in combination with the harp traps. And yeah, we're using wildlife acoustics, um, mini, mini song meters detectors yeah. as well um, in all situations. So we've got quite a number. So yeah, we've got them all over the landscape. Um, and that, yeah, the, the captures just help us re reinforce as you say, what species the bats are. So often we do need to take wing biopsies. Um, you were talking about genetic samples and sometimes that's necessary. But as you, like, like you were talking about earlier, you know, back in the eighties, you would have had to sacrifice the bat to take a, 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 set, a specimen. But now just from the little piece of wing, a wing biopsy, we, we take wing biopsies of all the bats when we release them. And that, that allows to help us identify the bats that we've collect, cap, captured. So yeah, we're using a whole combination of captures and acoustic methods now, which is very effective. Yeah, no, it it's, uh, sounds good. What's happening in this big picture here at the top? Um, yeah. uh, you've got a group of people here and I take it this is some of your team. Uh, is this maybe you sitting here actually? I'm not even sure if that's you that's sitting yes. down. It is you, okay. What, what, what's going on up here? Tell us the backdrop to this picture. Well, you, you can see it was during the pandemic because every, all the children are wearing masks and you're wearing masks. But yeah, we we basically, we, we're trying to promote awareness of this research that we've been doing on, on farms and so on. So we've, we've partnered with four schools in the local area, in the Kwakwa campus area, two primary and two senior schools where we've given presentations on bats in general, and we've used a, a standardized questionnaire that was published um, Perez and co-workers about perceptions of bats in Brazil. And um, that was published about a year ago, especially in the day of, you know, in these days of um, all these pandemics and diseases and bats often are being blamed in that context. So this questionnaire yeah. was developed to look at bat perception. We're using the standardized questionnaire. So what we're doing here is we, 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 we're presenting um, Presenting, a, we're doing a presentation of about an hour on bats, and you can see we put bat houses on some of the properties where the schools are. So we okay. we engaging the learners to to tell them about the research we're doing and why, and to help us monitor these bat houses and see if they occupied. So we basically are involving us here. We it's a primary school, and yeah, we were just doing some games with bat with the kids as well. So we do a presentation, but then we try and teach them about echolocation. So there was that game we used to play as kids called Marco Polo in your swimming pool where you close your eyes and then you use sound to try and locate where someone's coming from. Okay. So we were playing that game with kids. So we would make one of them a bat and then 
Another one, we would make them an insect and, the, you know, the, the, but we would use the mask to blindfold the child and then would ask her, where's that noise coming from? Um, and then her colleague would walk around the schoolyard and everybody was involved in this. Yeah, she's yeah, he's there. So they were understanding principles about bat echolocation and how bats use echoes to, to hear where, you know, where the prey comes from and to, to navigate. So it's basically just into environmental education that we're doing with the kids. And what we're wanting to do is to do this questionnaire before um, we do any um, environmental classes with them and involve them in these projects. And then six months later, we wanted to give the same questionnaire to the same groups of children to see if, the, if there's been some change. So as you can imagine, our initial surveys showed that, that the children, school learners have some lot of negative ideas about bats. Some of them think that COVID, that bats called COVID. Others think there's witches. The bats are associated with witchcraft and others think that bats are evil. So there's a lot of negative stereotypes we've found in, and we're hoping to change them through this sort of long-term partnership. So we're not, it's not a once-off thing, but we go back, we're providing posters on bats and a Facebook page. So it's an ongoing partnership we're trying to, to demonstrate to these school kids and try and get to see if we can change their perceptions. And they're very quick to learn and they ask brilliant questions. So it's been fun. It's yeah. been great fun. And of course, with the uh, kids of that age, they will then go home. And, and even if just a small percentage of them mention to their family and their friends of family and stuff like mm -hmm. that, what they've been doing, uh, it, it, it begins to build momentum, doesn't it? It's, the momentum is far greater than, than you potentially yeah. see here in a picture such as this. It's, uh, you, know, you, you could have a dozen people in that audience there that go home and present a very powerful message mm -hmm. to other people in their community or their family group. Yeah, we, we hope so. And we hope to demonstrate to them that these bats are eating pests species like mosquitoes and and crop pests that are of value they you know benefit the greater community and also just to show that there isn't anything to fear so from the bats yeah and their minds are much younger than, than adults so we do hope that it'll they're more impressionable in a positive positive way yeah and, the, and it will affect the broader community because as you know we fight these stereotypes about is you know miss um myths about bats all the time yeah uh, i think the best way to counter that is with a positive message about look what bats are doing for you yeah. and that's another thing that merlin taught us rather than trying to just harp on the negative and and the whole time being defensive actually there's so much positive information about bats that 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 does the job for you without trying to bring up all the negative perceptions that the public has yeah 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 no no absolutely and and what we found in the uk and i'm i'm fortunate to be old enough i suppose to remember uh 30 years ago in the uk which is almost the time when i got involved uh my interest in bats began and i and i remember uh, 30 odd years ago and this is very anecdotal but um 
if I said to any of my family or people that I worked with uh, that I was involved in a bat group and I was interested in bats, I could guarantee that 80% of the time, the reaction I got from that individual was a negative reaction of some shape or form. And I now look at that today, you know, if I go into like a family event and somebody asks me what I do and I tell them what I do, I would actually say that the whole thing is totally flipped. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's in fact, it's even higher. I very rarely hear mm-hmm. anybody now say anything negative about bats in that environment. In fact, I'm usually told in that environment now, you know, uh, either they've, they've got bats in the garden or they, or they remind me that bats are protected and, mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. And that was, and, and I've been able just personally, just to see what the difference in yeah. a lot of the public's perception in the British Isles has been over the last 30 years. And of course, I'll, a lot of that, if not all of that, is down to the workings of the Bat Conservation Trust and the kind of stuff that uh, gets shown on television by you know, David Attenborough and people like this. It just all helps present a positive message. Uh, so I'm imagining in a different way. Uh, this is the kind of journey that, that you're on as well. Yeah, yeah. But with, yeah. With different challenges, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. No, that's really encouraging. And like you said, the Bad Conservation Trust, for, it was really inspiration for us because um, they did such fun, they're doing such fantastic work. And that's what we try to do, starting the Bat Group in Durban. And so, yeah, we probably were at an earlier stage because that was my impression in the 90s was a lot of negativity. But the, the bat, that bat group has been faithfully just particularly amongst the public of Durban and the, the province around. And in South Africa, they just slowly, you know, they have workshops for pest controllers to show them how to manage bats in roofs properly. And we've written books on bats in roofs and done a lot of press coverage and media outlet out and talks to schools, many, 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 many. So I wrote a paper back in 2000, I think, just about how many, about the first three or four years of that bat group and how many um, outputs we are able to achieve through school talks, rehabilitation of bats involving the public in bats that, you know, that were down, that were grounded. So there were a lot of, a lot of positive aspects and it would be nice to revisit that again and see what effects that group has had also, you know, it's also started in 1994, so it's it's also been going for quite a long time. And it would, would be really nice to see, for example, with the public of Durban, where we started that group. I, I think there have been positive changes, but it would be nice to quantify, to quantify that. Now, as you say, the public generally now, they tell you bats are protected, whereas some, we saw horror stories where people would, you know, pour boiling water over bats in their roof or do, you know, do whatever they they could to exterminate bats from their roofs, um, which is not the case anymore. So, yeah, that is that is promising, and it's a big job in the across Africa. You know, as a whole, um, there's just not that much um, conservation effort, um, particularly on bats. You know, and yeah. public outreach. It's it's 
there is a Bat Conservation Africa group and they're doing an excellent job. That is much more of a job to reach, um, particularly you know, some of the more remote areas yeah. where there's still many of these false ideas about bats. Yeah, yeah. No, it's amazing. It's amazing stuff. And uh, let's, let's, let's hope for the uh, continued positive momentum. You've mentioned, you mentioned books and papers uh, a few sentences ago there, Peter, but uh, I did a, a quick trawl of the internet to see if I could find uh, books that you've either written either as the lead author or co-author. And I think it all started with this book down here uh, at the bottom, The Guide to Bats of Southern Africa. Uh, around about 2000, 2001, I think this was published. So that's mm. 20 years ago. Um, and then you've got the second edition now of the Bats of Southern and Central Africa that uh, you've co-authored with, uh, with uh, what, three, three colleagues there. And then you've got stuff over here on the right-hand side, which is to do with the other mammals, uh, no rodents, small terrestrial mammals and stuff. Talk about this very first book here. Um, that must have been quite a big event for you being asked to do this, putting this together. There probably wasn't anything quite like it before that. Is, is that right? You know, let, yeah. Let's talk about that. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't even asked to do it. I just it sort of was a follow-up to the smaller mammals of KwaZulu Natal. But then yeah. I think just because we saw the public interest was escalating in the middle 90s so much, we realized there was now a need for, for something for the general public and there wasn't anything before at all, as you said. So yeah, we didn't have much funding. I know we got a, a little bit of money um, from a couple of different sources, the Endangered Wildlife Trust. I remember I had to, we had to go to what, it was an auction basically at, at a nature reserve. They, they were getting scientists to, to basically try and raise funds by getting the private sector to donate. So um, we were fortunate. I had to dress up as Batman and do stupid things. <laughs> um, and I just remember that two companies that I'd never heard of said, we want to fund your bat book. And they were just thanks to a, you know, a connection between the Endangered Wildlife Trust and this auction where we all had scientists did stupid things, but they thought this was a worthwhile cause. So with a bit of funding from these two companies, we managed to get an artist to do this work and um, to, to, to do the artwork for this that made such a, a difference. Well, the cover you see is one of Merlin Tuttle's photographs. So he okay. also was a great supporter and allowed us, he took quite a few photographs when he visited South Africa at the time. And he said, okay. you can use any of his photography, not going to cost anything. So wow. he was really a patron wow. of this book as well. So okay. that and um, the artist, you can't see the pictures inside, but they were illustrated by Christine Grant, um, who's absolutely a superb artist. So the money we, the small amount of money we got from raising these funds went into the artwork. And I think they also made the book quite popular because for the first time bats were, you know, they, they sort of came to life. The variety, diversity of bats, the different colors and shapes and size of the tail and that you, you realize you actually could, the public could get involved and bat detectors were just becoming available. So it's really supported this. There were two bat groups going in, in South Africa at the moment and they both, their membership really supported this book. So it was, yeah, it gave me massive 
satisfaction to to write that book and yeah yeah a lot of hard work though a lot of hard work putting something mm -hmm. like that together um yeah um and the this this book here which is uh, come along much later the bats of southern and central africa which is now in its second edition um which you've written with the other co-authors uh, i think these are people that uh, are more experienced in different uh, parts of southern africa is that fair uh, like uh, ara is a little bit further Ara's north than yourself is that Swaziland, correct? yeah, yeah. Um, a, a different experience i would imagine writing something like this as a group of people as opposed to you driving the bus as the lead author with the, yeah. with the first book, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, do yeah, you feel the two books complement each other quite nicely now, or do you feel that this later book has more or less now taken over from your original book? What's your thoughts there? Yeah, th thanks Thanks for that. Yeah, the, the original book that was published by the University of KwaZulu-Natal Unfortunately, we didn't sort of foresee the demand for it. So it went out of print and it's never been reprinted. Okay. So there's no prints. There's, you know, so the second, what you're seeing there is 20, the 2020 edition, but the 2010 edition of that Bats of Southern and Central Africa was a far more comprehensive scientific analysis, if you like. So okay. we pulled a lot of information with, with scientific experts. We tried to still make it accessible to the general public, but that first book I wrote was, it, you know, it wasn't fully referenced and we didn't have that much information. So the second, uh, well, well the, the, the next book, The Bats of Southern Africa, which was the first edition in 2010 and the second edition in 2020, have yeah. met a demand for generally, and not just Southern Africa, but Southern and Central Africa. So there was a need to broaden the scope. And actually we wished we'd just gone for the bats of, of sub-Saharan Africa, because, okay. you know, it just, there's still a need to fill in West Africa, East Africa, and there are books and, and publications that are doing that, but it, it really filled a need for scientific gap and it was fully referenced. And a lot of new information became available between 2020 and now 2020. In the last two decades, an enormous amount of new research has become available. So that's what that, that book is doing so 2020 edition was up to date a year ago but it's um a new paper came out just after that book was printed where a lot of the little brown jobs we call them the small best battalionid bats yeah. have changed their names they've they the oh, genus okay. names have all changed and i'm sorry to do that but my colleague aramonijam you know he he proved that these names had to change but they're not reflected in the 2020 edition even so okay. and like i say we've got a couple of new bat species that we're going to describe in the next year or two that so it's going to have to be <laughs> going to have to be produced third, again third I guess. it's going to have to happen is that what you're suggesting yeah somebody yeah. else maybe can yeah. Yeah. put it all yeah. together <clears throat> 2030 yeah but uh, you know it's uh, you know it's it's just it's just amazing to see i mean all, all of the and of course all of this is supported by years and years and years of research and working in the field and communicating with surveyors and interacting with the animals and communities and you know it's it's too easy for someone just to pick up a book and just flick through the pages mm -hmm. and 
<laughs> and I don't know. I'd say, oh, that looks all right. They kind of go, what? You know, it's like decades of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amazing stuff. No, it's been enormous. But yeah. fortunately, a lot of other projects, uh, you know, are providing information available more and more on a regular basis. So the Africa Corruptologica, I mean, African Corruptor Report, sorry, African yeah. Corruptor Report comes out every year or two. It's, it comes to thousands and thousands of pages and it's completely free and available to the public. So yeah. it's just a really updated list of African bats um, and new research, new information. It's just wonderful. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, we do have, like you say, technology has changed things a lot. But I think a lot of people still like to have a book they can pick up and, and open the pages. And take and take with them, I suppose, into the field, you know, in case they need to, I don't know, check a picture or check a measurement yeah. Or, yeah. Or, 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 or whatever, I would imagine. So where, I mean, I suppose it's a cruel question, but uh, your original interest was uh, mammals that were firmly set on land, so to speak, um, <laughs> you know. And obviously, you then got very, very heavily involved in bat-related work. Is your, is your heart still with what you were originally, uh, you know, passionate about? Or is that a lot more diluted now? I mean, I don't know. Is that a fair question? Is that like asking yeah. to choose between yeah. your children or something? I don't know. About <laughs> no, that's a yeah. good question. Yeah, I'm... I, I still love the the, ro the rodents and, and the shrews. So I'm still doing quite a bit of work on the rodents, particularly a group of them that look like your voles. They shaggy things with short tails. We call them flare rats. And they're one of my favorite rodents. And they're another group that just, they reflect what's happening in the mountains. So the evolution has occurred across the mountains in these rodents, but many of them are becoming threatened because some of them are found only on particular mountain tops and with fires and global change and land use change. Some of these rodents are actually becoming quite rare and there's even a couple of them become extinct, for example, in Ethiopia. So I think um, they are um, ecological indicators of, of great importance, rodents, um, of, what's, of conservation um, and of smaller mammals. And I've also long time been interested in the sort of ecologically based rodent management. So for rodents, we often, just like sometimes with bats, we have negative perceptions. When we think of rodents, we're thinking of, you know, big pests and rats and, and my house mice and things like that, although they're just a tiny proportion of the diversity of rodents. But there's a big um, move now towards ecologically based rodent management. So using nature, again, in the same way as bats, provide such valuable, you know, they, they, they're such important uh, models of nature in controlling um, insect pests and in agriculture. So we've got um, carnivores and birds of prey, and we've got so many natural um, rodent pet predators that we, we're trying to show that, you know, rather than, again, using pesticides to control rats and rodents in agricultural areas, it's much more sustainable to to look at um, ecologically sustainable methods, ecologically based methods of rodent control. So that's also still one of my actual pet passions is, 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 you know, trying to show farmers again that 
chemists, chemical pesticides are not the answer. Rodenticides are not the answer. Very often people get killed by these first generation hazardous chemicals that are still stored in people's houses and, yeah. you know, in um, shops and villages. And, yeah. you know, they're deadly to people, never mind um, wildlife. So we, we really have so much to learn. I'm sorry to harp on about rodents, but we have a lot to learn about ecologically based methods and more sustainable ways of controlling pests, whether they're insect pests or rodent pests. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm so glad I asked you that question because that's just brought mm -hmm. out a whole dynamic there that uh, maybe wouldn't have been uh, touched upon. So, uh, no, thank you mm -hmm. for that. Look, we're beginning to get towards the end now, and uh, as a thank you to Peter, um, we are going to make a charitable donation, and we asked Peter earlier. Uh, where he would like our charitable donation on his behalf to go to. And this is the organisation that he mentioned, which he has mentioned, I think, uh, at least a couple of times uh, earlier today in the interview. So this is the organisation that you were involved in uh, founding back in, what was it, the 19... 1994. 1994. And it's still there today, which must give you huge pride to think, I mean, back in 1994, you were probably just struggling to get through your first year and wondering mm -hmm. if it was even going to take off. And here we are almost, what, 30 years later, and mm -hmm. it's it's still there doing good stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are we're delighted uh, to offer albeit in a small way, we're delighted uh, to be giving these guys uh, some, some, of, some of our money uh, and mm -hmm. hopefully for them to do something useful with. So thanks for that, Peter. Is there anything that you want to say very briefly about them before we close things I, off? Yeah. yeah, it is enormously satisfying, as you say, yeah, to see this, that group grow. And I'm very grateful for, the, for that um, gesture. Very grateful. Yeah, they, they're still doing excellent work. I started the group with my colleague, um, Eleanor Kate Richardson, and she's still going, the, the, the group is still going strong and doing really faithful, loyal, long-term work, much like the Bat Conservation Trust. Um, behind the scenes, hard work that, that goes, that's ongoing, and especially in bat rehabilitation, that they, I think they've set new standards and um, how, how to deal with bats and how to do research on the rehabilitation of bats it's another whole subject so yeah. most of them are involved as bat moms or bat dads and and they do an enormously good job in rehabilitating bats and basically making the public much more aware of them yeah yeah so that's kind of taken us towards the end peter um i'll ask you to close off in a moment and just say goodbye to our audience but before before you do I just want to say that, uh, wow, uh, well, I'd never met you before today. I'd heard all about you. I'd done a bit of research on you, obviously. And yeah, I, I've learned stuff today. And it's been really, really fascinating hearing about your life, your experiences, your research, uh, the stuff that you think is important. And it's just been fascinating. And I just want to say thank you, a massive thank you to you, Peter, for your time today. 
And if you just want to say a few words to close off and say goodbye to our audience, uh, that'll be us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Are you asking me to for a few last thoughts? Yeah, you, you just say a few last thoughts and then yeah. just say goodbye, goodbye to our audience, and then we'll stop the recording. There. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm very grateful for the for this opportunity. Thank you. And I know I'm probably preaching to the converted with bat friends around the world, but um, I've just found something it's really magical working on bats. And and that's something that everybody of you who are probably listening can understand and share. This, you know, those of us that work on bats and and the conservation of bats have, you know, we're a bit eccentric and strange, but I think you know it's quite magical. So yeah. Thank you for listening to all the listeners. Um, it was it's been a great experience, and please continue supporting this this great um, initiative. We hope you enjoyed this talking bat interview, which is an edited audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to battability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.